Hello everyone, welcome to episode 3 of The Equilibrium. In this episode, Max Ward has had the privilege of sitting down with Laura Berger-Thompson. Laura is a graduate of the London School of Economics, a current Labour economist at the Federal Treasury, and has previously worked for the Reserve Bank of Australia. Tune in to find out the nuances of working at the RBA and Treasury, and to receive career insights from a real industry insider. Max, take it away. Thank you for joining us. So the first question I've got today is if you can just tell us a little bit about who you are and your journey to your position in the Commonwealth Treasury. Thanks, Max, and nice to be be with everybody here. Um, So my name's Laura Berger-Thompson. I'm an Assistant Secretary in the Labor Market Policy Division at the the Commonwealth Treasury. Um, So... I kind of consider myself to be an economist. I have always been an economist. I studied um, economics at at university and um, ended up doing a master's in in economics overseas. Um, I've always enjoyed economics and I started my career at the the Reserve Bank. I was a graduate there, went into their graduate program and, and spent a number of years there. But, um, decided kind of three and a half years ago that I wanted a bit of a change and, and decided to apply for a role at the, at the Commonwealth Treasury. And I spent my first three years doing macroeconomic forecasting at Treasury before moving to my current position. And in my current position, I'm, th- I'm thinking about labour markets, which I've kind of always done in terms of my, um, you know, my, my role as an economic analyst and forecaster. But um, thinking about actually what to do to, uh, to improve labour markets. So that's, that's my current role. So I'm, I'm the head of um, the, the branch within that division who, who does think about um, employment-related policies. So, so we give advice to the Treasurer on a range of things. Um, um, back and forth dialogue with the Treasurer himself. So in my role, I do get to speak to the Treasurer. Um, you know, you know. Sometimes that's face to face. Other times, it's we provide briefing documents to the treasurer, and we have quite an ongoing dialogue with the treasurer's office as well. So that's another way that that um, we get we get information across to the treasurer. That's pretty cool. Being had having had experience at both the RBA and the tre- treasury. Um, how how do the two compare? Like, not necessarily saying one's better than the other, but how are they sort of different from each other? Because uh, a lot of budding graduates sort of like to weigh up between should I go RBA, should I go Treasury? So I think that's a really interesting question. It's a question I get asked a lot. Um, I think the first thing is, is that they're quite different organisations. So um, the... The, the RBA is very much a, um, a very uh, kind of r- rigorous kind of academic-focused organisation. Um, you know, it, it plays the role in, in terms of the whole of government of putting out, um, you know, a lot of really high-quality analysis on what's going on, um, both in the Australian economy and, and, and globally, and, and, you know, certainly 
things that are very relevant for how we think about um, how the Australian economy is, track, is tracking and what the challenges are. So Treasury does that too, but Treasury um, has a lot of dif other different functions. So um, if you think about what the Treasury does, we have that kind of RBA function, albeit a bit, a bit smaller within the, the, the context of Treasury, where we're thinking about um, the economy, what the economy is doing, um, and um, you know what the, the economy is going to look like in the future, and how we can how we can adjust policies to do that. Um, to, you know, to help it help it improve and um, you know get better. I think traditionally. Treasury has focused more on long run growth than say thinking about the economic cycle, which is more in the remit or has been more in the remit of, of the, the central bank. Although with um, you know, interest rates at the zero lower bound, um, there's, there's a little bit more role now for, for that kind of cyclical policy within the context of, um, of, a, of a fiscal institution. But Treasury has a, a, a much broader range of functions. And so, um, you know, you can be involved in kind of a, a whole range of different, different policies in Treasury, whether mm. that's tax policy, whether that's, um, you know, thinking about kind of some of the labour market, labour market policies that I'm, I'm looking at. Um, Kind of, you know, there's a whole range of um, financial, um, you know, kind of financial market regulations that Treasury deals with. So there's a there's a much broader suite of of, of policies to to think about in Treasury. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, RBA. I guess um, their main purpose is is sort of all centered around monetary policy, and at the end of the day all that research gets narrowed down into that final number of what is the cash rate going to be. Um, well, yeah, okay, makes sense that Treasury um, deals with all sorts of fiscal policy matters. Um, so I did a bit of, I guess, LinkedIn reconnaissance and I saw that you studied at the London School of Economics. Um, can you sort of just, I guess, elaborate a bit on, on that experience? Because um, it's, I don't know, it's a very highly regarded uh, institution, but I've never actually spoken to anyone or I think there's quite a few uh, people within our society membership that don't actually know what, what goes on at the London School of Economics. Sure. Um, uh, so I did a master's of, well, it's, it's a degree that's not no longer offered, but at the time it was called a master's of public financial policy, which was effectively a master's in economics with more public policy subjects. Um, I really enjoyed my time at, at LSE. I, I think one of the things that is, so there are a few things that, are, that were really good for me about it. The first is that um, there's a lot of kind of really world-renowned academics. So mm. I was um, taught Labor market market economics from a Nobel laureate. Wow, was that a, was that a bit intimidating or? Uh, well, he wasn't a Nobel laureate at the time, um, but yeah. he, he subsequently became one. And he, you know, um, you know, just that the caliber of the the academics um, are really impressive. I mean, I think you know, in Australia, we have really impressive academics too. So I don't want to say that, mm. that the, <laughs> the academics yeah. in Australia are not also good, 
but but certainly you know there's a you, you certainly feel like you're surrounded by a lot of um, kind of really kind of smart people. The other thing that I think was really um, really great about studying at the LSE is that you know how international the the cohort of students was that I was studying with. So you know I, there were very few English students. That the majority of students were you know literally from all around the world. Lots of European people, but wow. people from Asia. Lots of people from you know Latin America. Um, yeah, yeah, it was really rewarding to just to kind of you know meet lots of people from from different different places and different walks of life. Awesome, that's that's really great to hear. I'll I'll move into some of the policy based questions now. So, obviously, the elephant in the room, COVID nineteen. Uh, so the pandemic has been a very significant economic as well as health event. Could you talk a little bit about how you went about thinking through the economic effects of a pandemic and how is this different to other economic shocks? Um, yeah, so I, I, as I mentioned, I was doing the macro forecasting in, um, in Treasury uh, during kind of uh, 2019, but also 2020. Um, I'm, I don't know whether fortunate is the right word, but I was also doing macro forecasting at the RBA at the time of the global financial crisis. So it wasn't my first crisis, it was my second. Um, and I think for in, in both cases, it, these kind of really big shocks just teach you so much and, and change the way that you, you think about the world. So in the case of the global financial crisis, the big lesson, from, for, at least for me and for others that I, that I know, was that we didn't really fully understand how important the kind of the financial market and financial interlinkages were before we had that that crisis and and one thing that really changed was our how you know we people and economists all over started thinking about well how can we build in a you know more um you know fulsome financial market markets into the way not only the way we think about the world but how we model the world the corollary here with the, with the pandemic was really thinking about how important the supply side of the economy is rather than demand. And I think as forecasters and as economists, we often think that, well, we take supply as given, like, you know, the number of people who are working, you know, the population, productivity, we know we can influence and, and participation, participation a little bit, but kind of from a, from a, particularly from a cyclical perspective, we kind of think, oh, well, we just take that as given and then we um, think about what are the different factors that influence demand. And, and in, for the pandemic, that was completely flipped on its head because what we were doing um, in response to the health crisis was to shut down particularly particular parts of the economy. And that's not a world where, and there's a bit of demand, there's people feeling kind of cautious and, and wor you know, worried, potentially have had income shocks. So there certainly is a demand channel but the biggest channel that we had to think about was supply and what happens when you actually just shut down particular parts of the economy. So, so in, terms of, in terms of how we, we approach that, we had all these lovely kind of econometric models that we used to use and the way that we thought about the world. And we said, well, thank you very much, demand-driven econometric models. We actually don't, aren't going to use you anymore. Mm -hmm. We went 
we, we completely changed the way that we, we, we do our forecasting and we, we went to a much more production side of the economy approach. So thinking about the industries, thinking about how many people work in particular industries and, and which industries were going to be able to work, um, you know, continue to, to operate and which industries weren't and, and how many people would be affected by that. And it, it posed some really interesting questions for us. So things like... Um, within particular industries, how many people can work from home? The answer to that was actually more than we thought, <laughs> so, you know, which makes sense. But, but at the time, um, you know, we, you know, there was a lot of kind of resistance to working, well, much more resistance to working from home than, than what we have now. And, and um, mm. the, other, the other thing is that, um, you know, we, we had to think about things like, what happens when schools are closed? What does that do to people's ability to work? Mm. And we also had to think about, and this sounds a bit morbid, but it was something that particularly early on in the pandemic we put a lot of thought into, how many people are going to die? And we were looking at the health modelling and thinking about the effect that that might have and not only die but be actually incapacitated by sickness at various points in time. And what was that going to do to, to, to the economy? So some really kind of really interesting kind of theoretical questions mm. in, in terms of thinking about the economy but you know remembering that this was happening in an environment where we were kind of personally concerned about ourselves and our families as well yeah yeah i think uh, uh an answer i have in response to the question of how does um children learning from home affect productivity i can say that it at least for me severely <clears throat> decreases my productivity um but i think another thing i'd say is yeah like this is a bit strange but as an economic student as much as the pandemic was a horrible horrible thing um it's it's been great to sort of witness firsthand sort of an interesting case study like when we sort of changed some variables that have been held constant for a long time and see what happens um, so I'll move on to the next question. So what role did the econo economic analysis have in setting policies, both health policies and economic policies, including JobKeeper? Why was something like JobKeeper able to be implemented so quickly? Um, so so that's, a, that's a really big question. Mm. I'll see if I can do justice to it. Um, I think from where I was sitting, the, the economic advice has been really influential. So we, you know, the government was wanting to understand from the very early days of the pandemic, and, and I think we sometimes forget that the pandemic started, for Australia at least, with us shutting the borders and really being worried about the pandemic that was happening somewhere else in the world. And so it was really for us, it started about, uh, it started quite early on when we, when we closed our borders to, you know, first kind of people from China or coming from China and then, you know, gradually, um, you know, went to a, a harder border, which given our, our, our free-flowing, um, you know, both my, migration flows but also tourist flows had, had a really big economic impact even without all of the kind of subsequent lockdowns that happened in Australia. So, um, you know, we, we were looking at this really early on thinking, well, what happens if we close our border to, to these countries? What happens if we stop, if tourists stop coming to the country? 
um, and providing advice to the government on that. And that was really informing some of those early packages that the government of support that the government provided. And, and kind of throughout the pandemic, there's been a really strong link between, um, you know, the, with the government wanting to understand what the economic impact of its health, its decisions around health, um, health are. So, so the health, the health response was always first, but but want the government was very much wanting to. Um, you know, make sure that it was informed as to the economic impact of those choices that it was that it was making at the time, and, and to the extent that it could make choices that were less harmful economic economically. And so we were involved all the way through as things were changing in terms of what does this mean for the economy? What does this mean for the economy? And so we we you know had access to some of the really early and and frankly pretty scary health modelling. Um, and thinking about what, you know, I touched on that earlier, but thinking about what the economic impacts of some of these things, if we didn't, um, if we didn't lock down, would look like. And then, you know, thinking about, well, um, you know, what are the economic impacts of locking down? And, and I think um, some of that, that really early work was, was, was influential in things like the, the developing of the, of the job keeper, keeper payment, because the government, we, we were doing some economic modelling at the time. We had falls of GDP that we were expecting, you know, in a kind of a worst case scenario, because remember that we were doing these, were, a lot of these were scenarios. We, we didn't know whether it was going to be a good outcome or a bad outcome, but we were thinking about what is a really bad outcome here. And we were thinking GDP could fall by up to 25%. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the, wow. could, we could have, you know, a quarter of our economy lost pretty much overnight. Mm. And, you know, over 4 million people could be, could be not working relative to, to where we were. So we had some really big, big numbers um, when we thought that we would have to have some pretty strict lockdowns or, or the, at least that those lockdowns were, were in kind of somewhat likely and, and was one of our scenarios. So, so those types of scenarios were really informing the government's, the government's policy responses. And, and that happened all, all the way through, including when, you know, the Victorian lockdown came and, you know, the government said, well, what does that mean? And then, then the government was thinking about, well, how, you know, how can we support the economy further? And, and then you had the extension of, of you know, part, partly then you had the extension of the JobKeeper payment. Yeah, job job keepers are uh, suffice to say been a massive lifeline for a lot of people, um, and I think you know people at the start of the pandemic were thinking that uh, unemployment would would get to levels uh, that were seen during the Great Depression, you know, in the in the twenty percent. So uh, the fact that I, I believe it don't don't think it got higher than about seven point six percent um that's a it's a massive success and when you just say Chris when you're doing the all these modeling how, how many usually how many different types of scenarios are you modeling is is there a certain number um so so we haven't we haven't um necessarily always consistently done formal scenarios um 
we at, at the start of the pandemic there was there was as I said this kind of really bad scenario as well as kind of a, a more kind of moderate scenario if you want to mm-hmm. if you want to take that and and I you know there was some um some scenario modeling done in the context of the budget last year the um So, so you know, typically when you do a when you do scenario modeling, you have kind of a central scenario and then a kind of a, a, a high and a low. So, so often you, if, if you do it, and the RBA has done this, for example, and, and published throughout last year, you know, a, a kind of a, a range. And, and we certainly have been thinking about about the ranges. The, the the number of scenarios isn't 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 really the purpose of of the of the scenario modeling per se. What you really want to do when you're doing scenario modeling is to think about what is the level of uncertainty that we're dealing with and how can we give people a sense of what the actual possibilities are that could happen. And and that's one of the things, you know, I think when you're you're an economic forecaster, everyone places a a lot of emphasis on that that central number. You know, I thought the economy was going to fall by 7% and, and that's a, you know, or, you know, and, and that, that kind of central path that you're thinking about, or the unemployment rate is going to get to 10, you know, whatever, whatever your numbers are. I think when you're in an environment like we were last year, the, there is so much uncertainty, a much higher degree of uncertainty um, than what we would normally operate in, including because you don't know what the evolution of this virus is going to be. But the, the, the really what you want to do is say, yes, we have a single number, but what really matters here is that we know it's going to be negative and big mm. and 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 we're trying to think about well what does negative and big mean because it's negative and big that matters it's not is it 10.2 or 10.5 or you know the the, the point estimates are, are much less important and the scenario modeling is a is a tool that you can use to think about what the what the likely range of outcomes could be Right. And um, the actual outcome, has it sort of been tracking with, with the moderate expectation or has it been closer to the good expectation or the, or the bad expectation? So it, it depends which, um, which particular metric you're looking at. Yeah, right. I so, guess in terms of GDP. Yeah, so GDP we've done, we've done very well. I would say yeah. surprisingly, it's uh, you know we I used the the seven percent example just before we which was the fall in GDP in the June quarter of twenty twenty. Um, I we had published almost the exact same number. Um, wow! Which was and how often does that happen? <laughs> not very often, even in normal yeah. times. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty um, a pretty surprising and and a very pleasing result for us yeah um and we i think there was one one quarter where we didn't do quite so well but but overall i think we've actually performed pretty well on a gdp forecasting basis on um the unemployment rate we haven't done so well it's actually been much much better than what we had expected pretty consistently we we were really surprised at how um, how fast the unemployment rate has kind of returned to kind of pre-pandemic levels. 
And and also about what about underemployment? Um, how, how did that track? Do you think? So underemployment, and I'm a bit less close to the data now than I was because I've changed jobs. But yeah, it, it certainly went up. Um, but that also improved a bit. So, so I think the labour market overall has been much stronger than what we had expected. Yeah. One of the reasons for that actually is that, um, and, and this was somewhat surprising, we, we, we and, and towards the start of this year, we started to see signs that in some specific industries, not all industries, but in some specific industries, there were signs actually of, of um, quite tight labour markets. People couldn't get the workers that they needed. And there was actually a really... Um, kind of intuitive explanation for that because these were industries that tended to rely much more heavily on, on migrant workers. Right. And, and because we had closed the borders, hmm. we, we didn't have that same flow of kind of temporary migrant workers coming through that we, we had in previous years. Okay. And I guess that sort of stems on to our next question of... Uh, what is it about the Australian economy that it's, it's been able to perform relatively successfully to, to the rest of the OECD nations? I believe we're only one of, one of four or five countries that have recorded um, GDP that was actually bigger than what it was before the pandemic. So I think there's a couple of things there. The most important one is that we've had much better health outcomes. And because and, and the modeling that you that people may have seen that has just recently been released, which was a kind of a joint Doherty Institute Treasury modeling exercise, kind of makes this exact point that if if you control the health outcomes, then you don't need the really damaging lockdowns and prolonged lockdowns that you've seen in other countries. Mm. And, and effectively, the longer that you lock people down for, the more damaging it is because if people aren't working, they lose their skills. Um, you know, businesses, they've got fixed costs and, after, you know, after a certain amount of time, it's just, it's just much harder to meet those costs. So, so the longer you, you don't have this economic activity, the more damaging it is in the longer term for your economy because you can't bounce back as quickly. So I think it's really the health outcomes that we've, we've um, done very well at. And, and the reason for that is that we, you know, A, we're an island and, mm. and B, we shut borders. And we shut borders quite early. Um, and, and because of that, we've been willing to, you know, we've been able to contain the virus and, and we've been willing to, to lock down hard in different, in different states when we've had outbreaks to make sure that we do. Okay. So I guess... Can I add, sorry, yeah, just yeah, like, add sure. a few more things? Because yeah. the, you know, so there's obviously the health outcomes, but I think policy has been also very important here. So we saw when we instituted, um, you know, the full range of, of policies um, early in the year, including JobKeeper, but also, you know, the, you know, you can you can name them. Um, you know, cash flow boost. There was the coronavirus supplement. It was, you know, it's a very comprehensive. Um, suite of, of policies to support both businesses and households. When people were locked down, we didn't have that 
decline in income that you would, you know, on aggregate that you would normally have associated with, um, with such a severe decline in economic activity. And because we supported people's incomes, it meant that, A, they were able to keep, you know, doing their online shopping and, and you know, we saw all sorts of, um, uh, you know, retail um, businesses start really start to boom, you know, people, mm. furniture, for example, and household yeah. was very, <laughs> it right. did very well. Um, but then people were able, when the restrictions were lifted, because because there hadn't been that scarring, because the, the income, you know, we had that kind of really comprehensive income support, actually people were able to kind of get back to normal or at least something that was kind of close to normal pretty quickly. And, and I think, you know, we have been surprised at how, how quickly the, the economic activity has come back and how little scarring there was, including on the labour market from, from what we've seen. So, so I, I guess policy and the, the effectiveness of policy is the other, other really, big, um, really big reason why Australia has done so well. And, and, you know, relative to other countries, we've, we've actually put in, um, you know, quite a lot of, quite a lot of money. So we're, we're, mm. we're certainly up there in terms of our, our support to GDP ratio. And um, the, the other thing that obviously dovetails in this is that we had a, a, a very low debt to GDP ratio compared to other economies coming into this crisis, which meant, meant we had the fiscal space to be able to spend which I think is, is another really important thing to think for us to, to acknowledge. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it was around about 50% debt, debt to GDP around, around there, while places like Japan and America is, is above 100%, I believe. So, yeah, we're in a much better position. And, that, and that, I think that's also why we're able to sort of hold our AAA credit rating, um, which is really important when it comes back to paying down that debt. Um, and I think something interesting that you said there is, so from the Treasury's perspective, the best economic policy focuses on the health outcomes first, and then that has flow-on effects to economic outcomes. And I find that interesting because there's like the media and there's a lot of economists out there that sort of seem to set the debate up as if it's, it's, a, it's a forked road and it's a choice between the economy and health. But... It, it, you're saying that, uh, that that's false, that you, you can sort of merge the two together? So I think there's a, there's a timing thing here. So I think everyone would say um, lockdowns are harmful to the economy, right? That's, that's true. I think where what you have to think about is that you might have a, a, a short, sharp lockdown that gets things under control, which means you can open up. So on average, your, your economic activity is higher, even though you've had this kind of over a longer period of time, even though you've had this short, sharp lockdown. So I think there's a, yes, locking down is, is harmful. And there is, there is, if you like, you could, you could think about there potentially being a short-term trade-off here. Although I think the other aspect to this is that if the health, health outcomes are bad, people will will themselves opt out of things, even if there are no lockdowns. So it's it's not as if if you didn't have a lockdown, things would go on as planned. I, I think that's mm -hmm. false. I think you need to think about 
how how important is the lockdown for not only the the subsequent health outcomes but for the confidence in people to continue um, to to you know participate in in the economy mm, so so right. I think it's a, a slightly more complicated more complicated thing it, you yeah. know, even at abstracting from the time dimension here. And the, what the Doherty and Treasury modelling has shown is that if you can get things under control with a short, sharp lockdown and then you open up, you're better off in the long run than having um, kind of, you know, not locking down and then having to lock down really hard for a much longer period of time. That's much mm. more economically damaging. Mm. That's a wrap for episode three of The Equilibrium. We hope you learnt a thing or two and have a better idea of what's out there waiting for you in the public sector. Don't forget to follow our Spotify to keep up to date with new releases and to follow UNSW Economic Society socials to keep up with any other events. That's all from us at The Equilibrium. See you next episode.